Greetings, explorers. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Can you believe it? We've reached the end of 2019. Although this will be my last podcast episode of the year, we are going out in style by having my friend and colleague, Dr. Morgan Cable, on the show to tell us about some truly exciting projects that NASA has in the works. Morgan is a scientist and a technologist working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We last heard from her in episode 30 of Strange New Worlds, where she told us about her laboratory work simulating the chemistry of Saturn's moon Titan. I recently caught up with Morgan when she visited the University of Washington in Seattle to give a lecture at our Astrobiology Colloquium. The theme of today's show is animals and spacecraft. In Star Trek, there are plenty of examples of spacecraft that take after animals. The Klingons and the Romulans are famous for their birds of prey and warbirds that really do look like avian creatures, complete with beak-like bridges and wings with featherish designs. In the 2009 Kelvin Timeline movie, Spock pilots the highly advanced jellyfish vessel. And in the most recent season of Star Trek Discovery, a probe travels back from the future with squid-like appendages that attack Captain Pike's shuttle in a scene reminiscent of an epic battle between a giant squid and a sperm whale. Or, because the shuttle didn't really put up much of a fight, perhaps that of a virus breaching a bacterial wall. This connection between space vehicles and animal forms is not just a science fiction fantasy. NASA is at various stages of developing real-life missions that take after biological creatures in name and function. Morgan will teach us about two of these today, Dragonfly, which has already been approved but not yet built, and Eels, a mission concept in preliminary stages of design. Both of these aim to explore moons of Saturn that the venerable Cassini spacecraft unveiled during its long and fruitful tour of the Saturnian system, and to which we must return and explore up close and personal. Morgan, the last time you were on Strange New Worlds, we spoke about Saturn's moon Titan. And we did. Yeah. Just to remind the audience uh, about Titan, Titan is a, a planetary body that hosts stable bodies of liquid on its surface, liquid hydrocarbons and lakes and seas, which is very exciting. It has an atmosphere that's thicker than Earth's and really complex organic chemistry that invites all kinds of exciting astrobiological questions. Um, and you told us about some of that wild new chemistry that you've been discovering in your lab at JPL. But since the demise of Cassini in September 2017, it seems like your lab and labs like yours were going to be our main source of hope for understanding what the processes on Titan would look like until it was announced this summer that NASA had selected Dragonfly as its next New Frontiers mission. 
And so I described the announcement of Dragonfly from my perspective a few episodes ago on Strange New Worlds. You and I were both at the Astrobiology Science Conference here in Seattle when that announcement came out. But I gather it was quite a bit different for you because you're actually on the Dragonfly team. Oh man, yeah, that was an incredible day. So as you said, we were at AppSciCon together. I wasn't the only member of the Dragonfly team there. Uh, Melissa Trainer, Scott Murchie, uh, Shannon McKenzie, a few of the other members of that team were there. And we actually found out an hour before the announcement was made. Oh. And I am not a poker player. I do not have a poker face. That was <laughs> the hardest hour of my life. Uh-huh. My plan was actually to hide in my hotel room because we were warned that if we gave away anything before the official announcement was made, that uh, you know there was an embargo, we could get in trouble because, of course, you know NASA wouldn't want some some random news source leaking the news. They wanted to be the ones to make the announcement. And so I was planning to hide because, oh my goodness, anyone could look at my face and immediately know, right? Um, well, I was looking back at, at, at you throughout the process because um, I, I figured that they would inform the team members beforehand. And so I kept on looking back at you and I saw this very stern look on your face and I thought, yes. oh no, they chose the alternative mission Caesar. <laughs> and when they announced it was Dragonfly, I was just like, I couldn't believe it on two levels. One, because I was rooting for Dragonfly and second, because I had all these doubts in my mind because I kept on looking back oh, at you. <laughs> so I adopted the scowl because it was the only expression I thought that I could maintain. And then I did not make eye contact with anyone. Did you notice? <laughs> yeah. I never looked you in the eye mm -hmm. because I'll bet you would have known right away. Way had you done that mm. uh, but yes yeah, so the announcement was made and I remember we went to that giant conference room it was it was the largest uh, assembly area for the conference and Melissa Trainer even strategically decided where we should sit because someone had told her oh well if you sit in the back that means that you didn't win and if you sit at the front that means you won so she was like we're gonna sit in the middle <laughs> <laughs> so we all sat in the middle and then when the announcement came there was a huge eruption of cheers and applause and I could finally drop my my scowl and really show what I was feeling in my heart which was such excitement and disbelief too it didn't feel real it still doesn't honestly, um, until our first science team meeting, which happened recently. Yeah, so most people aren't familiar with the process of building a planetary mission from scratch. In fact, probably most scientists are also probably not familiar with how this whole process works. So could you describe real briefly how Dragonfly came to be from the glimmer in somebody's eye into a mission proposal into a selected mission for NASA? I'll do my best. Some missions people are added on a little bit later, and I was one of those. So Zibby Turtle, the PI of Dragonfly, invited me to be part of the science team after the idea had been pretty well formed. And I was so grateful to be part of it. As you know, Titan has been a passion of mine studying in the laboratory for a while. And uh, with Cassini's graceful end of mission and the fact that we weren't getting any new data from the Saturn system, I was so excited to be involved in the next step. But Dragonfly originally started off many decades ago. Scientists have been looking at different ways to explore Titan because of this atmosphere. It's a really unique environment. And so instead of like the standard Mars rover that we have been using in um, places like Mars, where the atmosphere is thinner, we could investigate things like balloons, mongolfiers, ways to drift around and be able to study the atmosphere and the surface. They've looked at airplanes that could stay aloft for months or years, 
And as part of that, now with the technology development that's gone into drone aircraft and automation for flying, uh, some kind of rotorcraft seemed like a really nice way to be able to be mobile without having to drive across a surface, which takes a little bit longer. And so we had been looking at various uh, versions of something like that. Uh, Ralph Lorenz, who's, who's a member of the Dragonfly team, has been coming up with all sorts of wacky ideas, and this one actually stuck, he said, uh, when he started having some discussions with a lot of engineers. And so it went through many, many iterations of development before the final version that now you can see if you Google Dragonfly NASA and check out the website. Uh, Johns Hopkins and the Applied Physics Lab have done a great job illustrating the concept and showing how it's going to land uh, going through the atmosphere. Instead of seven minutes of terror, like we usually have with Mars landings, uh, we'll have about 100 minutes of mild angst <laughs> as we slowly drift down with parachutes through that thick atmosphere. And at some point, Dragonfly will separate from the back shell where it's sort of protected and encased, and the blades will start to auto-rotate because of the pressure of moving through the atmosphere, and Dragonfly will start to fly and hopefully target our landing ellipse with high precision and land safe and sound and radio back to us, uh, direct communication to Earth to let us know that it landed safely. And then we get to start our mission. That's awesome. So you say 100 minutes of mild angst because it takes a long time to descend through that thick atmosphere. And mild angst instead of terror because we're pretty sure it's going to work? Well, there's always risk Mm -hmm. with any sort of mission architecture, especially a new one. Right. Um, But one thing that I found working with some of these amazing engineers at JPL and APL where Dragonfly will be built is that as long as you can test various subsystems of that architecture to really high fidelity, you can be pretty confident that the whole system will work. When we first at JPL started the sky crane method of landing really big payloads like the giant Mars rovers on Mars, there was no way we could test all of that effectively here on Earth. The gravity is different and the atmospheric pressure is different. And so instead of trying to test the whole thing end to end, the engineers of that project decided to test each subsystem. So they tested the parachute deployment. They tested uh, how the rover would separate from the back shell along a tether and and be lowered down because the rover separates along with the sky crane sort of payload that has all of the retro rockets that fire. Then the rover is lowered down on a tether. But the point is each subsystem could be broken down and tested really, really in detail um, independently for any sort of twists or turns or things that could cause that part of it to break. Mm -hmm. And so once they tested all of that and realized they had sort of margin that overlapped, then they were pretty confident that it would work. And it's worked once so far. And (laughs) knock on wood, when Mars 2020 lands uh, next year, that will be uh, another testament to how good engineers are at their jobs. JPL's motto is dare mighty things, right? Yes. And I think that most people's perception of, of NASA is this very innovative and daring institution. 
The closer I got to space missions, though, the more I began to realize how much safety protocol is involved, how much NASA really loves relying on heritage things, things that have flown and been successful so far, and so we'll launch that kind of design again. And so Dragonfly seems like a huge departure from that. We've never had a flying vehicle, much less a, a rotorcraft on another world. And so do you think that that is a sign that, that NASA is getting a little bolder again in their mission designs? Or was this something that took a lot of convincing? As, as somebody who helped plan the mission, uh, was there a lot of, you know, don't worry, it sounds like it's crazy, but it's really going to work. We've checked the math kind of thing over and over again. There is a lot of that for sure. Uh, this wasn't something that just happened overnight or out of the blue. Scientists and engineers have been pushing new architectures for a while. And uh, NASA, I don't think, would invest the type of money they're investing in a project like Dragonfly if they weren't confident that it could be successful. Yeah, it is kind of fun to think that we're being a little daring, uh, but NASA has always been excellent at double, triple, quadruple, and ad infinitum checking of things because we don't want to put in all this time and effort into something that you know may have a significant risk of failure. And I know that it seems kind of wild and crazy, but we're also working on a helicopter that's going to go aboard the Mars 2020 rover. So this isn't uh, an idea that will be unique to Titan. I think any planetary system, uh, planet, moon, what have you, that has an atmosphere could take advantage of technology like this in the future. And you're right, NASA dares mighty things. We we do the first things is, is what we like to, to say is that we'll try something that's never been done before. And Dragonfly is a great example of that. Awesome. So what kinds of instruments will Dragonfly be bringing to Titan? Dragonfly is going to bring a host of instruments that will address everything from the chemistry, potentially the biotic chemistry, if we find evidence of organic molecules that are similar to life or maybe completely different from life as we know it, but still indicative of something interesting going on. It's also going to have payloads that will look at the uh, bulk composition of Titan because we still don't know what the surface is made of uh, and also look for things like Titan quakes and weather. Uh, so let's go through the payload. Let's see. First, there's uh, my favorite instrument because I'm a chemist is uh, DRAMS, which is the Dragonfly Mass Spectrometer. This is going to have a couple of different ways that it can bring a sample into the mass spectrometer. One is through something called a pyrolysis GC, which stands for gas chromatography uh, mass spec, and that basically heats up the sample, and you can heat it up slowly or quickly, and gets all the volatile stuff, the stuff that can turn into gases, and then it looks at the mass to charge of those, so how big they are and how much charge they have, and then you can identify what they are based off of that. It also has something called a soft ionization technique. This is a laser desorption ionization. Basically, you fire a laser, which I know doesn't sound very soft, but it is. <laughs> uh, and this is a way to get big molecules. Uh, we'll use it on Earth all the time to study proteins, for example. Now, in Titan's atmosphere, Cassini detected molecules all the way up to like 10,000 Daltons and larger. That's big stuff. That's protein-style molecules. And so this ionization technique, we think, will be a great way to look at those. So that's one instrument that'll really get at the organic chemistry. 
We also have something called a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer. I think that acronym is DRAGONS, right? We see a theme mm. here. And that one is going to basically look down wherever we land, down at that landing site, and give us the bulk elemental composition. How much carbon, how much hydrogen, how much nitrogen, stuff like that. So we can be able to piece together a surface composition and how that changes with different landing sites. Then we'll have a seismic package, so some seismometers that can search for titan quakes or any other weird sort of geophysical processes that are going on. Uh, and then it's got a MET package as well, the meteorology package that will be able to tell us wind speed, direction, temperature, even get this relative humidity. But on mm -hmm. Titan, it's not water humidity, it's methane humidity we'll be looking for. Other than that, we've got a ton of cameras, uh, so we'll be able to get all sorts of images. Uh, we may even be able to see some fluorescent molecules uh, if those are present on the surface. So it's a pretty exciting payload and can't wait to collect that first sample in 2034. <laughs> Space is big. It takes a while to get to the Saturn system, uh, but it's going to be an amazing day when that happens. Yeah, I look forward to it. So the amazing thing about Dragonfly is that it can relocate itself via flight, so it doesn't have to spend all of its time, for instance, studying one mountain in one crater, um, but it can hop around. But surely there are certain priority targets for Dragonfly to explore, so what kinds of environments most excite you about Titan that Dragonfly will go and visit? Oh gosh, all of them excite me, right? Because we don't have much in-situ data. Now, the Cassini mission did have the Huygens probe, which was built by the European Space Agency, um, and it went through Titan's atmosphere and landed on the surface. But it didn't survive very long, and it only collected a little bit of data from one location. Now, it turns out Dragonfly will actually be landing near Selk crater, which is about the same latitude as the Huygens probe landed. So we can be able to compare some data sets as we go down through the atmosphere and start to sample the surface. But even just in that region, there are a lot of different train types that we see classically around Titan. There are very few impact craters on Titan because its atmosphere is so thick. Like It takes a really big comet or meteor to get through and make a mark, but one did at Selk Crater, and so we're hoping we can get at some of the bedrock of Titan there, which is water ice. So we'd like to study that and see what other kinds of salts may be present in that ice, or trapped organics. It could be a window into the subsurface. Also nearby are some dunes. Titan's equatorial region is covered in these dunes that are made of some organic-y stuff, but we don't know exactly what it is. We'll finally be able to answer that. There are also some inter-dune regions, places in between the dunes that we'd like to land uh, and investigate. And ultimately, as we do some hopping, we'll, we'll get to potentially some of this more like hummocky terrain and just all of these other regions that they're morphologically different. And we don't know if that morphology also translates into compositional differences. And that's something that we'll be able to understand. Yeah, that crater sounds very intriguing because presumably when that comet or asteroid hit Titan's surface, it would have melted some of that bedrock, which is made of water ice, and so it would have been liquid water in which organics would have been mixing. Sounds very intriguing from an abiotic chemistry perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, so we can make what we think are some of the complex organics on Titan. We can make them here on Earth uh, using all sorts of chambers. You basically take nitrogen and methane, and you expose them to an energy source like UV or plasma discharge, and then you make this sort of orangish-brownish stuff. 
and we call it tholin. Actually, Carl Sagan named it, which I love. It comes from the Greek word tholos, which means muddy or not clear, which is perfect because they're sort of muddy colored and it's not clear what they're made of. So I love that kind of double meaning. But you take tholin and you dissolve it in liquid water and you make amino acids and nucleobases and all of these prebiotic molecules that at least as far as earth life goes, that forms our molecular machinery of life. So if there are places on Titan's surface, like Selk Crater, where we have evidence of some of this melting, we should go and look and see if those same prebiotic molecules are there. So my last question about Dragonfly is, if you could look into your crystal ball and predict, what specific scientific question do you think Dragonfly could answer that will completely revolutionize the way we see Titan? Wow, that's a question. Okay, (laughs) um, I think we're going to be surprised on so many levels that I couldn't even predict what that one question would be. But the one really amazing thing about Titan is that if you look at the stars in the galaxy, at least the observable universe, our sun is not very common, right? Red dwarfs are much more common. And if you look at the type of planet that would be in a stable orbit around a red dwarf, it would be about one AU away, one astronomical unit. That's the same distance Earth is from our sun. But since red dwarfs are much dimmer, they don't give off as much light, the amount of light that a planet would receive at that orbital distance would be about the same light that Titan receives from our sun. So if you just look at like how many exoplanets we're finding around other stars, chances are there are more Titans out there than Earth's. And so if we find some potential for exciting life, some biochemistry, even prebiotic chemistry that has implications for us being able to predict where we might search for life in the solar or in the universe not just our solar system that is pretty exciting because chances are there could be a lot of those out there that's a fantastic answer yeah Yeah, i actually just submitted an nsf proposal to do a project modeling titan-like exoplanets so the trappist one planets they're a little closer than one au but from their their masses and radii it looks like their densities are pretty low for a terrestrial planet which means they might have a lot of ices and they'd be more titan-like in composition cool so uh we called it a a melted titan uh in in the proposal what does a melted titan look like oh my goodness that would be really exciting Mm -hmm. yeah Anyway, fingers crossed that that gets uh, funded. Me too. Yeah. Um, So yeah, let's shift gears to another of Saturn's very exciting moons, Enceladus. Yes. Um, Now, I don't think we've talked about Enceladus quite as much as we've talked about Titan on this podcast. So could you give our listeners a very brief introduction to this fabulous world and what makes it so exciting? Sure. Enceladus is fabulous. I always say, since I'm a small person, I'm pretty short, that um, good things come in small packages. Small can be mighty, and I think Enceladus is a great example of that. Since it's a relatively small moon, uh, but it's super exciting because of what's going on there. Uh, Enceladus is about the size of the state of Arizona, and it has these four giant chasms in its south pole that we call the Tiger Stripes. Because it looks like a tiger, giant tiger, just went and scratched a giant hole in the bottom of Enceladus. And out of those four cracks is spewing free sample from its liquid water ocean into space. And that comes out in the form of gas and also these ice grains. Because, um, of course, space is cold and it's vacuum, so the water freezes when it goes out into space. 
Cassini discovered this, we call it a plume, and was able to actually fly through that plume multiple times and essentially stick out its tongue and taste what was in those gases and grains. And we found some things that we did expect, things like uh, water ice, CO2, ammonia, but we also found things we did not expect, like methane and hydrogen, H2, molecular hydrogen. These are things that microorganisms can eat or produce, depending on the types of, of bugs that you have in an environment. And it tells us also that Enceladus is in a state of disequilibrium. That means that, for example, for carbon, you have some examples of oxidized carbon, like CO2, but then you also have examples of reduced carbon, like methane, CH4. Now, that tells us that there could be an opportunity for an organism to take advantage of that and get energy out of conversion from one to the other. So that's pretty exciting, and we definitely need to go back. Uh, Cassini's instruments were designed to look and understand small molecules that are present in the Saturn system, because that's all we thought was there. Oops, uh, turns out there are a lot more. Uh, in fact, the cosmic dust analyzer aboard Cassini was able to find very large molecules in the Enceladus plume, frozen in those ice grains, but it didn't have the resolution to tell us what they are. So we don't know if they're proteins or you know, precursors for life or maybe bits of cells, we, we don't know. And so we'd like to go back with a mission that could taste those grains in the plume or potentially even get down to the ocean itself and really address that question once and for all is are we alone could there be life on enceladus and you're part of a new mission concept that will look for biosignatures on enceladus it's called eels which is an acronym for exobiology extant life surveyor yes and it actually looks like an eel so why does it look like an eel? Okay, so this is a project that's still in its infancy when it comes to the engineering and making sure that it could be robust for an environment like this. Uh, my good friend Kaylin Carpenter, who's been in the robotics group at JPL for a long time, uh, came up with the idea. And he came to me uh, about a year ago and said, hey, Morgan, we've got this great idea of a way that could potentially move around on the surface of Enceladus and get down into the vents. Are you interested? We need some science help. And of course, I jumped at the chance. And so eels is, think of like kind of a segmented snake that has these rings around the outside that are angled such that if those rings rotate, this thing can move forwards or backwards. It can also uh, roll into a circle and it can sort of turn itself uh, around in a way such that it can turn into an Archimedes screw. Uh, this is a way to counteract the forces of the vent pushing material out. It's, if you do the math, it's about the equivalent of, say, going up against the force of gravity here on Earth. Mm. But Enceladus's gravity is much less. It's 0.01 g, 1% of Earth's gravity. And so you don't have a lot pulling you down, but this could be a way for us to sort of slither our way into one of the vents and get down to the ocean. This kind of architecture is also really helpful in getting through, say, loose-grained, kind of unconsolidated media. Things like, if you picture Enceladus, it has this plume, it's making these grains that uh, some of them escape into space and form the E-ring around Saturn, but many fall back down to the surface. And so you could picture this, like, icy sand that's kind of loose. It would be really hard to drive through with a traditional rover. Uh, but it turns out that something that's more snake-like and adaptable 
people might be able to get through that terrain uh, much more easily and more quickly mm. than a standard rover could. Yeah, I'm thinking about like cars getting stuck in a snowstorm, right? Because it's, it's hard to drive through really fluffy snow. Exactly. But I guess an eel would be a better design for that. Yeah, and of course there are many other concepts that are also in development, uh, but this one is it's a lot of fun to think about how it could potentially be implemented on some future uh, mission to a world like Enceladus. We always challenge ourselves at JPL to think outside the box, to try something that's never been done before and see how it could work and then test the crap out of it, right? To make sure that no matter what one of these ocean worlds throws at us, that we can be able to achieve the mission objectives, whatever they are. And so you mentioned that if a mission like EELS were to actually fly and go to Enceladus, we would want to taste those organics and taste them, I guess, a little bit better. So what are you imagining for the science for this mission? Uh, what kinds of instruments would eels have that would look for signs of extant life? Oh, I would like to bring all sorts of things. Uh, I would like to bring some kind of molecular analyzer that could tell me, for example, what kind of amino acids are there. Uh, we would assume, since this is a liquid water ocean, that life maybe would at least use some of the building blocks that are widely distributed amongst our solar system. And that means things like amino acids, because they're found in meteorites all the time. They're just around and abundant, so we should use them. So we look at those and see if the distribution of those amino acids was biotic, enriched in certain key ones that maybe are thermodynamically really tough to make or if the distribution is abiotic, that only the simple ones are there, nothing complex and nothing really exciting from a biology standpoint. We would also try to understand the chemistry of this environment. Now, thanks to Cassini, we do know a bit about the geochemistry of Enceladus, but there's still lots of unanswered questions. So I'd want to bring something that could tell me what salts are there, um, exactly what the pH of the ocean is, because that tells me what kind of chemistry could happen. Uh, and then ultimately, I'd like to get down to see if there are really are some hydrothermal vents, because if I were an organism, that would be the hot spot where I could get most of my energy from. Very cool. I think between dragonfly and eels, it is just so fascinating to me that the robotic instruments that we're designing to go and look for life elsewhere in the universe are sort of inspired in their movement and in their design and in their capabilities by life forms here on Earth. Do you have any reflections on that kind of symmetry? I think it's really cool. I mean, the, the way that organisms got to be the way they are, the way humans are bipedal, the interesting things that we see in the oceans with things that have a radial symmetry like octopi and octopods, octopods. Octa I think we just decided yesterday octopuddles because yeah, we didn't know. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, if that's a technical term. <laughs> they all have formed that way because of evolution, right? That that ended up being a strategic advantage to have that, that morphology. And I think it's kind of cool to see how our robotic explorers are also evolving and adapting to new environments. You know, one thing that works well on Mars or Venus may not work so well on Pluto, or, or maybe some aspects of it do. And I think as we are growing and changing and, and trying these new things, daring mighty things, uh, some traits, evolutionary traits of these mechanistic organisms will continue to be retained if indeed they are 
ideal for that environment, but some will be left on the cutting room floor or you know, some avenues may not end up panning out as well. I really hope and I believe that the Dragonfly architecture is one that will be successful. We're going to continue to test wacky and wild things like eels. We'll test them here on Earth and, and put them through their paces. And if indeed they are as robust as we hope they are, hopefully we'll get to see them on a world like Enceladus one day too. That's a really cool insight that there is a sort of Darwinian aspect to mission design too. And when I talked about heritage that NASA likes to use, um, now I see it in a new light. It's not NASA being boring or lazy, but it's using something that worked before. And so it was sort of selected for by the pressures of, of mission design. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So last question, it could very well be that in a few decades, a mission called Dragonfly or Eels might find life somewhere else. And you'd be a huge part of making that discovery and uh, being a part of history. So what would it mean to you personally if we do find evidence for life out there? I am one small part of a giant movement of science and engineering that has been going on for decades, right? Ever since uh, we first designed the Viking landers to go to Mars. I mean, this question has inspired us for decades, if not hundreds and hundreds of years. Any time that we looked up at the stars and wondered, are we alone? And I do believe that we're finally at a point technologically where we can address that question, at least in our own cosmic backyard. And if we find life in multiple places, just here in this one tiny solar system, whether that life sprung from one place or multiple places, I think it gives me personally a lot of hope that this big universe is not so empty and that we have a chance of, of reaching out and exploring and finding that there's so much more than we could have ever imagined. And that makes me very happy to be part of a momentous discovery like that, if indeed we're able to do it. And if not, it'll be the next generation that is inspired to do it. And boy, but I really hope it happens in my lifetime. That would be amazing. Well, Morgan, you've been such an inspiration to me personally, your energy and enthusiasm for science and exploration and life is just unparalleled. So thank you very much for being on Strange New Worlds once again. Thank you so much for having me. Trying something that's never been done before. That's what Morgan does over at JPL, and that's such a Star Trek motivation. It's also exactly what it's going to take to meet the challenges of outer space. The creativity to think outside the box, inspired by the solutions that nature has discovered all around us. Don't rove, fly! Why crawl when you could slither? Now, before its swan dive into Saturn's upper atmosphere, the Cassini spacecraft discovered large organic molecules, both in Titan's atmosphere and emanating from the tiger stripes of Enceladus. But Cassini couldn't quite identify them. That's why we need to go back, because these worlds of the outer solar system are nature's laboratories for organic synthesis and could offer us huge amounts of insight about the possibility for life elsewhere in the universe. And on that tantalizing note, let's bring a wrap to Strange New Worlds for 2019. 
What a year it's been! We've had so many wonderful guests join us on the show. I played Discovery Bingo with my friends Peter Gao and James Tuttle Keen. We had Star Trek actors like Rekha Sharma and Anthony Rapp, and we had brilliant scientists and science communicators like Dr. Aaron McDonald, Professor Mohammed Noor, and Dr. Morgan Cable teach us about their expertise in science and its intersection with the Star Trek universe. If you enjoyed Strange New Worlds this year, don't forget to rate and review the show. And subscribe so that you will automatically get the next episode when it airs in January 2020. What an incredible year of science and Star Trek that we have to look forward to. And I can't wait to enjoy it with you. Happy holidays, everyone. And until next year, See you out there. So there's one other story I forgot to mention that I heard at the science team meeting recently for Dragonfly. Uh Uh, someone asked me, or you asked me once, I think, how Dragonfly got its name. Because it's, it's kind of interesting that it is named after an animal, but yeah. it doesn't really look like a dragonfly, per mm-hmm. se, right? Turns out, the original name was Firefly. Oh. Because uh, Dragonfly has a, an RTG as its power supply, and so basically it's butt glows, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but somehow, during the, the proposal writing process, they ended up changing it uh, to Dragonfly, I think because of the success of um, some other things with the Firefly name. Mm. Uh, so... We always have fun coming up with names for our spacecraft. I think it's one of the the most fun things to do with your science team or your Mm -hmm. engineering team. And it's neat to see how the Dragonfly name came about. And it's it's still very fitting, I think. It invokes kind of ideas of like grace in flight, but also fierceness, like a robustness. I hope that the mission lives up to that name.